On today's episode, I had the privilege in sitting down and talking to Carol Atkinson, a licensed family and marriage therapist who specializes in trauma and the psychological implications caused by trauma, such as addiction, DID, anxiety, and relationship and couples counseling. Carol Atkinson is the founder of the Trauma and Healing Foundation, which reside in Fontana and Rialto, California. If you would like to get in touch with Carol, you can do so by following the Trauma and Healing Foundation on Facebook. Hello, Carol. How are you? Hi, I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, Just thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate that. No, not a problem. I enjoy doing these conversations. Thank you, Carol. So real quick, Carol, if you don't mind, uh, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience? You know, how long have you been a therapist for? What exactly do you specialize in? Where are you located? Oh, that's a lot of stuff there. Okay, uh, so um, I'm Carol Rose Atkinson. Um, I'm a licensed marriage family therapist. Um, I am located in Fontana and Rialto, offices in both of those locations and a staff that works for me. Uh, we're called the Trauma and Healing Foundation. And, um, well, I specialize in anything that, comes from trauma um so that's going to be it could be addiction it could be you know did it could be so many different things uh depression anxiety the usual stuff but um relationship problems couples counseling because there you have two wounded people uh and usually underneath any of this is uh anxiety so i i I consider myself an anxiety expert there it is so uh, talk to talk to me about your trauma and healing foundation what what led you to to first work with trauma and you know and what led you to build this foundation well first of all you know we all have a story you know what what brought us into the field that we're into the helping field um so you know i come from some horrific trauma as a child and i spent a long time working on myself Uh, I still do the work. So, of course, I wanted to help others to get the freedom that I was able to get. And I found ways to speed it up so that it wouldn't take the years that I put into it myself. So I wanted to others people to just know what the freedom feels like. And as for why the Trauma and Healing Foundation happened, first I started my private practice and... um, always wanted a nonprofit, wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be, but we offer lower cost counseling to the community. I, uh, we're basically a training center. I, t- I train uh, trainees, associates, social workers, LPCCs, psych nurses. Um, I'm going to be uh, adding another consultation part to my business. I get to work with some elderly population. Um, but you know, I always knew it was going to be about trauma, and I wanted healing in there too because it's so important. Um, and that being said, doing a nonprofit's not the easiest thing. Um, so my private practice supported my nonprofit for years, and now it's turned around. It's the pretty much exact opposite way. And um, you know, it's again, you know, that I wanted to help the most amount of people while I was here on this earth. And knowing that I couldn't help that many, you know, and not burn myself out, I trained people to be kind of mini me. It's very interesting to me, Carol, that you're taking your experience with trauma as a child, right? And you're taking this vision 
that you have about helping other individuals and you're building an empire to do that. Right. Cause like you said, you don't have enough time in your day without burning yourself out to, you know, to lend a hand or give, give, you know, give somebody that voice or that power to, you know, to get through their trauma. So by teaching trainees, associates, social workers, you know, all sorts of mental health providers, uh, you're doing your deed um, through them as well. Yes, it's called scaling. And I make sure that I, I do that with as many people as I can. They go out there and they start teaching, you know, my concepts. And, you know, it, it, it just spreads. And how many people do they help? How many can we help as an organization? You know, we get to help thousands a year. So it's very rewarding. That, that's very beautiful. So let, let's get into it. So what exactly is trauma? And, you know, can trauma be categorized into different um, categories? No, it's a good question. Um, trauma is something that's disturbing. And with that said, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be disturbed by the same thing. So um, I started out working with 14 to 18-year-old kids and I was doing uh, very involved um, instruments for them because I was working with community behavioral health. And it gave me a good foundation. Um, so I would be testing for PTSD with every client. And, you know, I just start to hear the stories like there was a dead body and, you know, did that affect you? Well, no, it didn't because it was normalized for some of them. To others, it affected. Uh, the abandonment issues can be quite traumatic and quite often people don't even realize that's a part of their story. I rarely find uh, somebody that doesn't have some kind of abandonment story. So that's also, you know, trauma. And we think of that there's developmental trauma, you know, like work having it when you're under 18, usually maybe the first five years and then continuous on in different ways. Um, there's complex trauma where we're talking about, you know, lots of events that have affected them. And, you know, the thing that always separates the people that are affected is the resiliency. So if there's a lot of resiliency, and, and I think that I have that now, um, then those things don't affect you in the same way. They don't, the triggers that cause that and and we could go you know into military that i work with and so many different populations of trauma that you can find right it, it we go on and on so carol real quick um so you there's developmental trauma which you mentioned is anything that happens before the age of 18 and then there's complex trauma which is a lot of events that are that are very traumatic you've also mentioned that abandonment and, you know, you've noticed that a lot of individuals that are dealing with trauma um, have some sort of abandonment. Um, do you think that abandonment is uh, what leads to um, is the is the precursor to having PTSD and uh, various different traumatic events? Well, if you have a, an event that happens to you, let's say you're grown up, maybe you're 25 and you know, you see something that affects you. Let's just imagine, you know, there's there's an accident and you get to see it in front of you and there's a lot of uh, carnage and you, you just don't feel safe. If you've worked through that and you feel there's resiliency, then um, that thing may not affect you. 
But if you haven't worked through that, then that thing may affect you. And it's really that simple. You right. know, how, how, I mean, I, I, I'm open to talking about my trauma, but the stuff I've been through, it's kind of having all the things that I went through kind of rare. Uh, but without those things, I wouldn't be me. So I embrace it. Right. So for, for individuals or, or listeners out there that don't know where resiliency is, what, can you explain that? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. Um, resiliency is the ability to bounce back from that event without it tanking you. Uh, so if you feel triggered by something that affects you deep, and, and maybe you can't even talk about it to anybody around you, um, but if you have a response that maybe sends you into a vortex of depression, um, could activate some sort of a mental health issue, there, there's just so many ways to look at that. Um, so with that, it's really just about does that affect you in the same way as somebody else? Okay, so now that we're on the topic of resiliency, right, and whether or not, you know, a certain trigger or event, uh, you know, correlates to a response, how does the mind and body react to a traumatic event? You know, um, you know, does it, does it have to do a lot with the flight and fight, uh, fight uh, the flight or fight response? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, again, it's going to be about how does that disturb you? Because part of what we do as trauma therapists is, is do a full trauma intake so that we can map out a kind of a trauma timeline and know where to work. So that SUDS level, that subjective units of disturbance that you may have, the disturbing feeling you feel from a scale of zero to 10 um, could be affecting one person way more than it affects another. So when you're talking about the body, we're talking about somatic. And somatic therapies have become really big, I'd say in this last maybe 10 years, uh, they're getting better with this stuff all the time because what we have always affects our body. Right. It's in the cells of our body. So when you talk about that fight or flight, you know, you're talking about your brain and something happens, the hypothalamus in your brain then sends a message to your amygdala and to your prefrontal cortex. So your prefrontal cortex is a thinking part of your brain. If you're not very disturbed, you can think of solutions. Right. But if your amygdala, otherwise known as troublemaker Amy, decides that they need to hyper-arouse your body, cause a flight or fight response, uh, then, then you're going to have to work with it in a different way. And your body could have all kinds of reactions. You know, you could be tight in your shoulders or your back, or, you know, you hold it in your stomach often because that's your second brain. Uh, so I have got trained in somatic treatments since I was an associate, what we called an intern back there. Um, that was the MDR. Then I moved uh, to also use brain spotting, havening, and teaching my staff 
how to understand the body. Because well, if we don't understand that, and then you're talking about the brain, you know, the brain is where all this stuff happens. It decides if we need to freak out. And that's where the panic attacks come from. Very interesting, yes. And the isolation. Yeah, so, you know, the brain has a lot to do with, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of uh, a lot of the um, the displays that our body does and how, you know, panic attack, anxiety attacks, how the body sees certain events as, you know, as triggering. So it'll do or heightened a certain emotion uh, to protect mm-hmm. themselves, right? And it's usually when it gets the panic and anxiety attacks that, you know, it's gone too far, um, which hence, you know, leads to therapy. Uh, you know, when you mention that, I think of like, let's say you go to your primary doctor and you have a pain somewhere. And as part of the intake, they say, have you been under a lot of stress? Right. And, you know, a, a lot of people feel minimized when they say that. But the reality is that stress can activate whatever response we're having. And that cortisol can cause so many different things. I mean, I'll probably be here all day, but, but uh, asthma, stomach aches, headaches, you know, a lot of things that if they don't look at the stress in your life, then you're not going to be able to cover all of that what's going on. You'll just be able to put a Band-Aid on it. Exactly, exactly. So when it comes to trauma, um, how does trauma affect the relationship? And in what ways or in what areas does trauma affect the relationship? Yeah, that's really interesting to work with. I, I get the privilege of working with a lot of couples and also often um, our site is the first time that my therapists get to work with couples. So couples are two wounded people. Right. So, you know, and if we don't understand trauma, then we're not going to be able to get past their abandonment story or whatever they're dealing with. That's usually always there by the time they get to me. You oh. know, so many things. I mean, I work with a lot of Hispanic clients. And uh, if their family goes back to Mexico or another uh, Latino country, dads leave because they need to provide for their family. And even though they don't think about it, they have been abandoned. So when it comes to when it comes to relationships, uh, there's a you know one of our one of my followers had the question of you know what are some what are some red flags, some warning signs that you know your your significant other could be you know um, you know showing signs of a traumatic event or, or you're, you know or being uh, developed through a traumatic event. Well, that's going to be anxiety and anger you're going to see a lot of irritability you know they may not want to talk to you about it you you see that they snap quickly you know female or male does not matter Um, and when you see that there's often addictions associated Uh, it's pretty rare when that we don't do something to make ourselves feel better even it's something as benign as food or alcohol, or drugs, or gambling, or sex. You know, we can go on and on with that. There's a hundred and something different 12-step programs. So with trauma, quite often addictions are part of that. Are you, could you say, because there's, I've I've been doing a lot of research in regards to trauma myself, and a lot of of, uh, research, you know, correlates personality disorders with trauma. Is that something that you've noticed Uh. as well? 
while working with trauma? Well, I've noticed it in the world, let alone with my clients. Um, so, you know, the interesting thing about that, a lot of people don't realize the genetic predisposition. And we talk about, you know, borderline or narcissistic, you know, histrionic. There's, there's I think, nine of them. And um, with all of those different ones, basically what they come back to is in that first and there's a little disagreement about that three to five developmental years uh, because they keep changing that that timeline. Right. That there is a uh, a problem with the connection between the primary giver and the child. So the child knows that they kind of have to count on themselves because the primary caregiver doesn't have the skills to teach and um you know, basically to teach them the normalcy of life. So they start taking on these characteristics. The problem I have with some of this is, for instance, narcissism is the current buzzword. So I have more uh, couples where one of them has done all this research on narcissistic behavior and they decide that their partner's narcissistic and they come in, you know, with this, this um, pathologizing of whatever their clients or I'm sorry, their, their partner's behavior is, which I know I'm like, how is that serving you and your spouse or right. partner? And of course it doesn't, but they only know that way. It's black or white thinking, you know, with borderline um, narcissistic behavior usually is very different than the term narcissism. You know, there's an entitlement uh, there. They often are involved with domestic violence. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of anger that comes out of that from what happened to them as a kid. OK, so uh, so couples do this and, and I've and I've known therapists or not therapists, but associates or trainees, you know, while they're studying, you know, in their in their in their master's program where they'll learn a new diagnosis and they'll, you know, they'll have to know it for a test or for an assignment. And for whatever reason, and I've done this too as a trainee, for whatever reason, when, when, uh, when, in, it, when a couple or individual, you know, you know, mention their story or their, why they're coming for therapeutic services, for whatever reason that, that diagnosis we studied is the first thing that comes out to the brain. Right. And mm-hmm. you, like you mentioned, a lot of the black and white thinking and, you know, not taking other things into consideration. I can see how that affects, you know, uh, a couple in regards to pre-diagnosing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they do that all the time. And I do my best to take them out of that because the truth is, if you spot it, you got it. So if they're looking at that behavior, they probably have those behaviors themselves. Well, I never, if you spot it, you got it. I'm going to have to print that out and put it on, in my office. Well, that's another recovery term. Since I have 40, I think 41 years background in recovery, uh, yeah, there's a lot of those terms that pop up here and there. And it's really that simple. You know, if you're noticing behavior in somebody else, whether it's addictive or not, um, maybe selfish behavior, that means that if you're noticing it, then you probably have some of those criteria without maybe even making criteria of that disorder but why are we trying to pathologize the world 
Exactly. Trauma and domestic violence. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How, se- how severe is that for an individual? Because a lot of the times, you know, when you go through the cycle of domestic violence, the honeymoon stage really um, prioritizes itself compared to everything else. So, you know, what effects does trauma have or what, what effects does domestic violence have with trauma? Well, I mean, those are the people that feel very entitled to have it their way, which is different from being selfish because guys, we are all needy. This is called humanity. That's normal. You know, we wouldn't have Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs if we didn't, we weren't supposed to have needs. So people get confused between what people would call selfish um, versus a clinical disorder of narcissistic personality disorder. Right. So, so that there's, you know, there's no way of saying what the percentage is. You know, I think that that if we did a study on that, it would still be difficult to understand. Um, having worked with many narcissistic people, yeah, they may they may hurt them physically, but quite often it's more emotional. And it's hard to recognize that fully if, you know, if that's abuse or not. But that's really what's going on. Not to say that when I'm working domestic violence, I don't see those things because usually whoever is talking has had a history with their family where this behavior, domestic violence, has been normalized. So then when it's normalized, they have it in their partner and they may not see for decades that it's something that is wrong and has to go. Wow. That's the problem with developmental trauma. What something has been normalized in your family when you're growing up, cheating, alcohol, domestic violence, you know, there's a lot of things that can be normalized. You may think it's just normal. Right. Without without actually knowing the 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 amount of hurt or um, that that is causing you know another person or even yourself, mm-hmm. I want to talk about you know you you a little bit in regards to you know you you have over forty years of experience working um, in, in a therapeutic setting, right? Um, when it comes to when it comes to working with trauma, is there any specific trauma or any specific um, um, situation that you still kind of find, um, you know, difficult to deal with? My 40 some years background in recovery is not as a clinician. It's out, it's about being, um, in recovery, having, uh, walked through 12 step meetings. Um, I did not have alcoholism or drugs, but I went to the programs mistakenly. Um, but I have been involved with Al-Anon that's for the friends and families. Um, so I did want to get that straight because my, right. my background is not 40 some years. However, recovery is probably one of the biggest areas that I do deal with because trauma always has that kind of component. But thank you. Well, I think most therapists would say they'd have difficulty working with the predator. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but for me, I would say if you can see the wounded inner child then you connect with them there, then you're not going to see them in the same way. How, how can a therapist really, you know, when, when working with individuals such as that, you know, how, 
how difficult is it for an individual to work with, you know, inner child uh, therapy, you know, working with the inner child and, you know, having the having the individual go back to, you know, their childhood upbringing and kind of connect the, the trauma with that? Well, you have to have done your own work. If you don't do your own work, you're going to have a secondary trauma or um, cross, um, totally forgetting the word, um, countertransference and, and countertransference. And we as therapists have the countertransference where that thing is like our lives and it maybe triggers us and we have to do our own work when that person leaves. But how many people actually aren't doing their own work? I tell people, your job is to do that the rest of your life. Now, that being said, I mean, I, I spent years doing the deep, deep work. And now I go back when there is a specific trigger. Um, for me now, I do brain spotting. Uh, and, you know, also meet with my CBT therapist. And it's not a lot of sessions. Usually, you know, one will do it. Um, but you've got to be having, if you haven't done that work, you're going to get in trouble when you see, you know, suppose you've gone through DV in your life uh, and you are going through it at home, you know, that's going to affect you. Uh, right. Just the same as the predators, if you can't separate that the predator in your office is not the person that abandoned you or hurt you as a child, then you're going to have trouble seeing those clients. So when I have a trauma organization, I am constantly working with my staff, not only about their work as uh, therapist, but also questioning a little bit of their their personal stuff if they're willing to share. And of course, I give them the choice um, so that they can understand triggers and countertransference can be very positive, but you have to have done the work so that you can navigate around clients that have trauma that's similar to yours. So now that we're on this topic, I have I have a uh... Two, uh, one of them is Cassandra, the other one's Valerie. Uh, they have a question for you. So, what is the first step for beginning the healing process from a traumatic event? And as a therapist, what resources do you recommend individuals um, that are going through a traumatic event? Well, the first thing is basically to state that this thing happened to you and you know that it's affecting you. So, you know, we talk about the first step is to admit, you know, that that thing is happening or you feel that from something. And, and as hard as that can be, you know, some people are really good at talking about it without actually having worked through it on a deeper level so it doesn't affect them so much. Um, but you're talking about a very broad subject. So, you know, what resources can I give them? I don't just do that um, with until they're maybe in a sec second phase with me where they're trying to work through deeper stuff. In the beginning, I'm just going to sit in the darkness with them. I'm going to hold out my hand. I'm going to offer them 
uh, an ability to stand up out of the darkness. But first I have to sit there in there with them enough so they trust me to share. So I don't move to a, and this is difficult to say, like a surface level way of treating this. Right. You, you, you go really deep with it. And, um, you know, when, when working with trauma, it's very important to also remember as therapists, um, you know, you got to take it one step at a time. Right. You can't, there's no solution focused uh, therapy with this where, OK, what's the problem? Let's get through it. When working well, with- depends on the insurance company. I wouldn't touch it for that. But, yeah, they want us all to do six sessions and out. Right. And, and that's very impossible because, you know, one of the biggest things you talked about was abandonment and how, you know, a lot of uh, traumatic, uh, uh, you know, people dealing with traumatic, traumatic events or situations or just trauma in general, um, you know, they have some sort of abandonment issue. So, you know, as a therapist, building that therapeutic reliance or that therapeutic relationship or rapport um, is very important, especially if you want to get to the nitty and gritty of, you know, what their story really is. Yeah. I mean, that's really where I stay for a good period of time. And you can tell when somebody is at the place where they trust you enough that they're actually doing what you suggest to them, even though they think it's stupid. So those are those resources you talk about. You know, if you try this thing, it's going to feel strange. And every part of you may say that this is not going to help you. And then they come back and go, what the heck? <laughs> that right. really helped. Right. So as a therapist, what's the re- what's rewarding for you? Like you, 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 you get an individual or a couple to work through their traumatic event. What, what part of it is rewarding for you? Where, where do you get the joy out of it? Um, well, let me just make a comment about what you just said. I never get anybody to work through their event. You know, it's them being ready and they kind of leave me. I'm joining them where they're at. So when you said that, every part of me is like, oh, God, that would be a burnout. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I can't get them to work. But when, when I offer them other solutions, that's what I'm saying. That's when they're going to show me that they trust me enough to try those things. Right. Um, and forgive me, what was the other part you were saying? Oh, I was just asking you what... what, what when you're working with individuals that have trauma, what, jo- what joy do you get out oh. of it? You know, seeing them, you know, you know, get mm-hmm. through the trauma, you know, what, what, what joy do you get out of it? Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I get all the great stuff. I, every single thing that they do, that they try, that they get this aha moment of, wow, I can do this thing. It's not even that hard and I can change my world and how I am affected by it. So when I see those behaviors, I mean, I'm praising the person uh, deeply. And at the same time, I'm just like, you know, smiling from ear to ear, just so proud of them and what they've chosen to do. Uh, Every single process with every client is amazingly rewarding. I can't even describe the level of joy that I feel from it, it's every single person that I get to touch as a part of this process brings me joy. And that's such a blessing. Carol, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come out on this podcast. The information, the, the information that you've, um, you've blessed us with today was extremely valuable. And 
Um, and this is another way of you, you know, being able to help various people uh, through trauma, you know, having this information for them, you know, telling them exactly what it is that you work with. Um, it, it was great. Thank you. And me too. I mean, I, I love being able to do podcasts. We even got the chance to be on um, Telenova 52 TV. There. Whenever we can do that, you know, we get the word out that there's hope. You know, that's what it's all about. So if you would like to follow me for more information, you can do so by following me on Instagram at best behavioral therapy. Once again, that is best underscore behavioral underscore therapy. For more information regarding therapeutic service in the IE or the state of California, you can contact Morning View Family Therapy at 909-757-5770.